Our text is Psalm 90. Psalm 90 is, according to the superscription, a prayer of Moses. And while we don't know the original setting for the psalm, a number of scholars feel that it would fit well in the wilderness where Israel faced divine displeasure before entering without Moses, before entering without Moses, the land of Canaan. Of course, regardless of where we situate the psalm, it remains a text of enduring relevance for the people of God, and it can be read, like all the psalms, profitably, without committing to one original context. Now, you heard Psalm 90 read this morning. It's the first reading, the Old Testament lesson. And I suspect that what strikes one on reading through the text, at least the first time, is a sort of grimness. It is not apparently a cheerful text. You can look at Psalm 90 in your Bibles and pick that up pretty quickly. The text seems to have an almost tragic feel about it. And some have certainly read it that way. The, 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 if you will, the dark way. However, I think it's misleading to see the text as tragic, as resigned to life's futility. The text is sobering, though. It is unblinking. There's a realism about it, but this text is a plea. It's a prayer of Moses. You notice that in the titles. It's a prayer. It's a plea for help. And it's a hopeful one at that. So we'll make three points. They're there in the the outline at the back of your bulletin. God, wrath, and grace. First, God. So Psalm 90 opens. And I consider this opening, these beginning two verses as critical to the whole psalm. It is taking this opening seriously that prevents the psalm from collapsing into despair. So you you get in verse 1, Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. God himself is Israel's and our dwelling place. Our home, our atmosphere, our environment, the place we live and relax and work and play and move and have our being. We live in God. He's our home. And he has been so throughout all of history's long progression, throughout all generations, the text says. So as the hymn puts it, he's our God, our help in ages past. Neither the city, neither Jerusalem, nor the temple, nor the land. All of those things could be, and they were, lost to Israel. None of them provide the ultimate home, the dwelling place of the people of God. Neither does your house, or this house. Neither does heaven itself. It is communion with God himself which constitutes your place. 
the place where you reside. In communion with him, we live. He's our habitation. I suggest that we don't think about this enough. We are very comfortable with the idea that we are his house, that he dwells in our midst, that he gives us his Holy Spirit. But the text is saying that he is your house. And that is a helpful way to think of our relationship to God. He is our habitation. And this one, the text says, in whom we dwell. He's the eternal God. You can see that in the text. He transcends time. He stands above and before all things. The text says, before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the whole world from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Again, Isaac Watts, the same hymn. Before the hills in order stood or earth received its frame, from everlasting you are God. To endless years, the same. Or this very Moses, the man of God, as he puts it in Deuteronomy 33, he says to Israel, the eternal God, the eternal God is your refuge. Underneath are the everlasting arms. God holds you underneath with his arms in his house, in communion with himself. And so, it's the eternality of God, his sovereignty over time, his lordship over time, which enables him to come to our aid, the aid of his creatures, in time. It's the fact that God is everlasting and eternal that enables him to secure your frail existence, to anchor it and root it in his eternal being. Have you ever thought, I was talking to someone just last week about this, um, about the gift of salvation, the gift of eternal life. It is not as if God thought, These creatures of mine are really bad, and I'm really generous, so I'm going to give them this really, 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 really spectacular gift. I'm going to give them this gift of eternal life. That's not the way God operates. If God himself is our habitation, if he himself is the end of our being, and if he is the eternal, ever-living one, then communion with him means eternal life. God never gives us anything but himself. Salvation is eternal life because he's the everlasting, ever-living God. And so there's a sort of God-centeredness that Moses is trying to create here for us. And the idea is not just that we have a dwelling place. The idea in the text is that if the eternal God is our dwelling place, then we have an unassailable dwelling place. A safe, hospitable, indestructible, everlasting home. The home you have now, do what you want with it. Will it to whomever you want. Somebody you don't know is going to be living in it a couple centuries from now. Some stranger is going to be sleeping in your bedroom. And taking care of that yard over which you labored. God is an everlasting, indestructible home. 
This is why he's our hope for years to come. The song says our shelter from a stormy blast. Now this is, as I said, the key to all that follows. And we must not lose sight of this as we read on. And that is not easy to do. What these two verses establish at the outset of the psalm is that before all talk of sin and vanity and death and wrath, and you're going to get a pretty high-octane dose of that in verses 3 through 12 of this text. Before all of that, it means we are not homeless. We are not now, nor have we ever been without a center, an everlasting place. We are not rootless vagabonds in a cosmos. We have a place. In fact, we have a community of persons, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, that we can call home. And that means we belong. Not because we fashioned our own dwelling place. We could not do that. But this home is a pure gift. We belong. And we belong to this God as our eternal dwelling place. This is a wrenching sort of thing in the sense that it reorients us, but it is necessary so that we be calibrated to reality right. Now, as an aside, this idea in Psalm 90 verse 1, this is the very tap root. This is the deep logic that drives Christian hospitality. God has been hospitable to us, to us strangers in Jesus Christ. He's invited us into his house. He seats us at his table. He has said, my house is your house. I am your house. Therefore, invite others into your house, to your table. And by doing so, you enact and you reflect and you imitate the deep hospitality which you have received from the eternal God. It's much like eternal life. It's not like God sat up there and said, I'm going to give him a really cool gift. How about eternal life? That sounds fantastic. Let's do that. And I'm going to give him a bunch of commandments. Let's make them have, have people over for dinner. They don't want to do it. They're private. They're Americans. You know, and too much of, of another person irritates them. But let's make them do it. Well, why is there a command to practice hospitality? Like everything else, it's rooted in the being and the nature and the life of God. It's not like it's an afterthought and God says, you know what? You people should practice some hospitality. That would be a nice way to be kind to one another. That's not what he's doing. He's drawing us to himself. That's why there is a gift of eternal life. That's why there are all the commands. So, in verses 1 and 2 in this text, there's a deep security a stability which proceeds and rises above the tumult and the stormy blast and the agonies of time, to which we must now turn. And that brings the second point, wrath. And this, this comes as a stark contrast in the text. Verse 3, you turn people back to dust, saying, return to dust, you mortals. This is why it matters that God is our eternal home. This is an evocation of Genesis. God made man from the dust and 
from dust we were taken to dust we return after the fall. And sadly, the prospect of everlasting life and communion with the everlasting God is squandered. And the whole planet is now one global cemetery. And yet, and yet the Lord remains sovereign in immortal glory. Verse 4, a thousand years in your sight are like a day that has just gone by, or like a watch in the night. Again, the hymn, a thousand ages in your sight are like an evening gone, short as the watch that ends the night before the rising sun. The psalm is not making a mathematical point here. It would be a mistake, I think, to think a thousand years are like a day, therefore two thousand years are like two days. The point is not that time goes slower or faster, for that matter, for God than it does for us. The point is that God has no problems with time. He relates to it freely in his majesty, the way he relates to any other created thing. And time's a created thing. And so the, the psalm is saying that as everlasting and eternal, he's the Lord of and the Lord over time. Time does not determine him. He transcends and determines time. For us, though, now that we're returning to dust, time is a serious problem. This is why we're so frantic about so many things. In the end, it's a lethal problem. Verse 5, you sweep people away in the sleep of death. They are like the new grass of the morning. In the morning it springs up new, but by evening it's dry and withered. We run around like crazy. We struggle. We grasp. We seek leverage and control. And, and the answer to a lot of why we do this is because we only have a very short time. That's why everybody's on the treadmill at the gym. There are no immortal people on treadmills. Right? That's why everybody works hard at their job. That's why everybody pays attention to their retirement portfolio. That's why everybody does everything. Why? Because they don't have an infinite amount of time. We're withering grass. We don't often surface, surface this. What is the, what is the Watts hymn says? The busy tribes. The busy tribes of flesh and blood with all their lives and cares are carried downward by the flood and lost in the following years. Right? Everybody's on this little water slide into the darkness with their fingernails scraping up against the side to try and slow down the descent. Of course, we don't accept this, which is why human existence is often one long act of denial. We, we avert our gaze. We live as if we and our loved ones are going to have years numbering in the millions. And so, beginning in verse 7, the psalmist is about to get even more grim. Hang in there. He's probably referring to a time now in the wilderness where even in the midst of the basic futilities of life, Israel was under God's displeasure on top of that. 
He says, we're consumed by your anger, terrified by your indignation. Our secret sins are before your face. Our days pass under his wrath and we finish our years with a moan. Time, like an ever-rolling stream, bears all its sons away. They die forgotten as a dream dies at the opening day. Sometimes it's not just the basic futility of life. It's the basic futility of life and God's displeasure on top of it. And, and here's what this means, I think. In Psalm 90 is a good reminder of this. The Christian teaching, the Christian doctrine of the fall, and the subsequent curse on the ground and our labors, the futility to which the creation is subject. All of this basic theology is not incidental. It's not like an insignificant little footnote to an otherwise very pleasant situation. It's basic. It's pervasive. It leaves nothing untouched. Often this only comes to light after a horrific evil or some tragic unexpected event. But life has a way of reminding us of the nature of things as fallen. I've often uh, spoken to and counseled people who struggle with the sheer senselessness and pain of the human condition. Right? There's an endless river of stories that beat us across the head that seem absurd. People, there are people for whom certain things just seem unbearable in the light of a good God. And the answer, if we must call it that, is always the same. We're presented with a kind of choice. On the one hand, we can say this. We live in a senseless, cruel, and meaningless world. But the other hand, the other choice is this. And this is what Christians don't seem to get quite right. We live in a good, created world, but it has gone horribly wrong. There are no scenarios where we are left unscarred. None. We're east of Eden, exiled, far from home, under a curse that afflicts our existence. Psalm 90 makes that quite clear. Yes, the curse is removed in Jesus Christ. Praise God for that. But not all of its effects are removed into the new creation. But I'm getting a little ahead of myself. In the meantime, the psalmist says... You know, we may live 70 years, or if we have strength, 80. Our, our days are filled with trouble and sorrow. And he exclaims in verse 11, verse 11, If only we knew the power of your anger. God's anger consumed this whole generation in the wilderness that Moses was a part of. He says, Your wrath is as great as the fear that is due your name. The human condition is a condition under wrath. We don't like to talk about this. It's particularly grating to the sensibilities of moderns. But the greatness and the reverence which, which God is due and which man has failed to render means we are under this shadow. And mercifully, mercifully, the psalm turns in verse 12. It gets better from here. This is the pivot of the poem. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. 
We can, in the situation just outlined, live as wise men and women. This is not, it is not a psalm of despair. Realism, yes. Sober realism, yes, but despair, no. The first part of this wisdom here is to assess the human condition, the situation with this clear-eyed, sober faith, which is what the psalmist just did. There is no wisdom in avoiding getting to the state of affairs right. This is why he injects at this point, teach us to number our days that we might gain a heart of wisdom. It's the same logic behind the text in the book of Ecclesiastes, which says it's better to go to the house of mourning, better to attend funerals than to go to the house of mirth. Funerals are much better than parties for you to assess yourself and the human condition. It's the same idea. Same idea. So, this means against our inbuilt denials, we have to number our days, our fleeting days. Because the reason we have to count them, we have to number them, is they're not going to number in the millions. I just imagine... If God passed you an index card right now that had the number of days you had left on it, right? That would have a sort of sobering, focusing, urgent effect. That's what the psalmist is saying. You don't think about this from day to day to day to day. Why? Because there's this deep delusion that there is no end to the number of your days. But that is the heart of folly. And you ought to have a heart of wisdom. And the heart of the heart of wisdom is to know you're finite, fleeting, vaporizing. Wisdom comes to grips with this. And this is the source, believe it or not, of hope. The psalmist doesn't say that our days and years, brief as they are, do not matter. That our lives are meaningless. Quite the contrary. He does what scripture always does. He takes the full measure of the situation. He goes down into the darkness, into the grave, into death, into alienation, into senselessness, into violence, into injustice, and out through the resurrection. We like to just go right across the top of it. Nobody wants to go down the death, then resurrection. Everybody wants to just go to treat Christianity like it's some sort of self-help thing. So the situation, precisely because we've now measured its grimness, that is the doorway to a wise and fruitful life. It's what gives you holy focus and urgency. And so when he set out this the state of affairs, he's not a fatalist. He doesn't relinquish his humanity. He doesn't relinquish his dignity as a moral agent. He acknowledges this eternal God of verses 1 and 2, and he calls out, For him to teach us. So it's the fact that God is the everlasting creator, that he's our eternal home. In light of that fact, the psalmist actually asks for more than wisdom. He asks asks for more than instruction. 
He calls out to God to radically change the current state of affairs. And that brings us to the third point, which is grace. And here we have a prayer. Really, it's something of a protest against the current reality. Reality is awful. It has these brutal features about it. And in verse 13, he says, relent, Lord. How long will it be? You know, the word for relent here is return. It's the word that was used in verse 3 where it said, God returns mortals to the dust. So the God who returns us to dust is called upon to return to us and to renew our fleeting lives. That's what the psalmist is doing here. He's bound himself. He's called Lord. This is the first time Yahweh, Israel's covenant God, is used in the text. He calls upon him to renew our lives. And the heart of that covenant renewal is communion. It's a dwelling place for sinners. So it's to this God, not only the eternal God, but the God who has appeared in time and acted in the Exodus and bound himself to Israel. That God is your God. He appeals to him, have pity, have compassion on your people. Bring an end to our exile from home. Satisfy us, the text says, in the morning. In the new morning, after this long night, with your unfailing love. The psalmist is praying here for a new era. That's what he's actually doing. He's saying, I do not consent to perpetually live in this situation. He's looking for a time when the realities of verses 3 through 11 are no longer decisive for human existence. It's quite remarkable to read verses 3 through 11 and then look at his prayer after that. I think his thinking is something like this. If God is your dwelling place, then the land, the creation itself, is going to have to be transformed to reflect that. We're destined to dwell with God in a new heavens and a new earth. So again, just to repeat myself, there's no resignation in this psalm. There's no acceptance of the status quo. There's no tragic view of life. There is realism, yes. But he is saying, O Lord, our current home must be rearranged so we can dwell fully with you as creatures who have to live and work and labor and love in the earth. And so in verse 16, he prays for God's deeds. Notice that. And God's own glory, his splendor, his acts and his being. He prays for them to be unveiled and seen by the people. And the text says that when this occurs, God's favor, literally there, his beauty will rest on our land, on us and the land. This is a marvelous thing. It says you're not finally defined as dust or grass. You're finally and definitively defined as image bearers of the ever-beautiful God. And this is what Moses prays for. Then he prays twice. There's a double petition at the end for God to establish the works of our hands. I mean, labor is burdensome now. It's frustrating. It 
comes by the sweat of our brows. It returns us to dust. But when the splendor of God appears, when his deeds for the sake of his people appear, he's going to give us in our labors a kind of enduring durability and value and permanence, one which we have even now in Christ. So we have to read the psalm, as all of them, in, in, in and through Christ. And it's particularly important in this psalm. Because I don't know if you noticed that the New Testament lesson this morning was from Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Right? And that's a psalm about how God in Christ has moved you from wrath to grace. Jesus has already changed the sign under which we live and work and die from wrath to grace. Of course, he's done that already, but not fully. We still wait, and we still suffer, and we still die. And this psalm still serves as a kind of signpost against shallow optimism. But this is a psalm of hope. It's a prayer, a protest against the situation. It says, I long for the time when death is destroyed and the curse is no more. And those who pray this psalm are wisdom seekers. We labor now in hope, knowing that our labors are not in vain. That Christ is already establishing the works of our hands. That in him we have seen the splendor and the glory of God and his deeds. This is what enables us then, in and through Jesus Christ, to sing with Watts, our God, our help in ages past, our hope, our hope for years to come. Be our guard while troubles last and our eternal home. Amen.